0: Welcome to the You Have a Body podcast, two broads talking broadly about health, the physical, the emotional, the nitty gritty, and the fun. Real thoughts on real health. The information provided within this podcast is not designed to and does not provide medical advice, professional diagnosis, opinion, treatment, or services to you or any other individual and is intended for general information for educational purposes only. Welcome to You Have a Body Podcast, episode 52, Pop Science. Woo-woo! This is our first episode recording from two different locations.
1: (gasps) Distance recording, the magic of technology.
0: Yes. (laughs) So how's
1: Utah? Um, Hanging out with my new doggo friend, Jeff. My boo got a dog a couple months ago, and Jeff and I are kicking it, as well as Caleb. Caleb's here, too.
0: (laughs) where's hazel well hazel
1: oh it was such an ordeal i was gonna road trip down here um and then three days before i was gonna leave i was involved in a four car accident and i was the first car of the four cars so there was no car that i hit but because of all that i did not feel comfortable driving my car a thousand miles to utah so it is back minnesota and i didn't know what to do wasn't sure, like should i fly with hazel what's going to happen with hazel because i was able to be out here for a longer amount of time my parents stepped in didn't even ask them they're like we can hang out with hazel so they made it super easy for me to get out here which has been really cool but I did not get to meet jeff which had been part of the plan that i was really oh. looking forward to.
0: yeah that's sad
1: but it's all good i know she's getting a lot of A lot of love from the doggo grandparents that she has, so it's all good. How about you? What's going on in Minnesota aside from the cold weather?
0: Uh, Well, Petey's getting a haircut, so he's going to be extra cute when he comes out. Too bad he'll be shivering his brains out because it's 60 degrees today for whatever reason. So, otherwise, I had um, the best Airbnb renter we've had so far because we never even met her. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's perfect that's all you want from Airbnb I know <laughs> in and out
0: <laughs> she came in she messaged me while I was in the house saying that she was in the house and that she was upstairs and I never met her she never came down I don't know if she went to the bathroom in a cup and then just like threw it away later or what but she never came down she left the next morning it was perfect
1: and you're like a million gold stars for you <laughs>
0: Exactly. exactly. Are, you,
1: are you liking being an Airbnb host? Because you've been doing it just for a couple of weeks now.
0: Yeah, this is like week three and a half. And I, I mean, it's good money in terms of just passive income. I've been doing a lot of sheets, which is annoying, like putting sheets on a bed almost every day. But um, it's really forced me to keep my house absolutely spotless. And it's given me a good habit of cleaning up after myself after I do anything. So I guess there's benefits to it.
1: I mean, that's pretty cool. If, like, you're having to keep a clean house the and you're making money, like, just doing a little bit more laundry than normal. <laughs> that's not too shabby.
0: Mm-hmm. The other cool thing from this past week is that we did the Tarot Under the Moon event with Amy Kretzky. And it was so amazing. There were 15 people who came And everybody was from a very different experience level in tarot. Some people were brand new and some people didn't own a deck. Some people had been like actually reading tarot for 10 years um, and had read for other people. And first, Amy kind of took us through some basics about tarot, talked about uh, some spreads we could do under the full moon, what it means to have a full moon in Capricorn. And then we kind of shared with each other and we practiced doing readings on each other. And I think that was my favorite part because I got to meet somebody brand new and had her read my cards and I read hers. And it's just like such a quick way to get to know somebody when you read their cards and then they read yours. Because you have to, I mean, you're talking about stuff that's extremely personal and pretty detailed. So it was, it was very invigorating and it made me want to have a regular tarot meetup. And I'm hoping that Amy's on board with that so we can do that.
1: Would you continue to want to do it under a full moon?
0: I mean, yeah. Like, why not? Right? Such a powerful time. Yeah. Of course, in the summer, we met at 7 o'clock because it was a Sunday night, and I go to bed at 8.30 normally, um, but I was in bed by 9.30, like a wild child. Wow. So we met at 7, and by the time we were done, it was 9, so it was just starting to get a little bit darker, so we didn't really see the full moon, but we were reaping the benefits just of absorbing the full moon's energy, so.
1: Yeah, I can't, I mean, I would imagine, too, like, there's so many different types of moons, like a harvest moon, or, like, strawberry moon, or moons around Halloween. Got some good energy going
0: around. Or just so many energy. moons!
1: Exactly. I love it. Moon child.
0: Yep. So, let's dive into this ep, because I am dying to talk about pop science, and I know that you've been dying to talk about it, too, ever since we saw the dreaded coconut oil article come out three or four weeks ago.
1: And that came out when I was here in Utah visiting last month and I got all these questions. People were like, Lucia, what do you think? Lucia, oh my gosh. I was like, I can't answer until, until I get some other like nutrition minded people who start to come out with different like rebuttals and finally that happened. But oh my gosh, the day that that article was released was, I couldn't believe what I was reading with that. So I would love to jump into that.
0: Yes. So pop science, the reason that we wanted to talk about it is because it's infuriating to fitness and health professionals in general because there's so much self-diagnosis on the internet and WebMD, right, is a big part of that. But on top of that, people are reading these articles from like USA Today and uh p- like blogs, and they're starting to make their own diagnoses about what they need to do and change their lifestyles based on what they read in pop science articles that are like, you know, 400 words long. And for me, as somebody who came from science, I studied geology and environmental science in college. Looking at those articles and then looking back at the science that it comes from, it's infuriating to me the kind of conclusions that these articles jump to. And the kind of conclusions that they force other people to jump to when they're read. Just makes me so upset.
1: And I think we should also make a distinction because when we say article, that can mean a couple different things. So the articles that we're talking about, especially like the pop science ones, are really like blog posts or articles on websites that are taking information from scholarly articles and pulling information from those in order to create a written piece that is likely going to be trying to maybe push people in one direction or another in regards to health or wellness or really any subject, but what we're looking at is is that. So I think when we're talking about articles and how to read an article, it's both the like pop article as well as the actual scholarly article that that information is being derived
0: and taken from. And the frustrating part about pop science articles is that They're the easiest way to access information on the internet. If you are just Googling something like, are eggs bad for me? You're bound to see a bunch of pop science articles show up in the first link. And if you're in a hurry, you might read them and take them seriously. So our goal for the episode is to arm you with knowledge and understanding so that when you actually do see an article like this, you can second guess it or think about it a little bit deeper hopefully come away with conclusions that actually make sense for you and don't just make you panic.
1: Right, because those articles, they're the pop articles, are typically being written to be compelling, to have a headline, to catch you, to draw you in, and to try and like throw you off of your balance to probably do something that they're asking you to do or not eat eggs or to eat. Well, usually it's to not eat stuff if we're talking about food. <laughs> What's going to cause cancer, or yeah, any any of that stuff?
0: Yeah, so I think the best place to start is just to jump right into the biggest question, which is how do you wade through the bull when you're online? How do you determine if an article is actually telling you the truth, and what is what it's actually based on? So I had the uh, luck and opportunity last night to interview Laura Heath Stout, who's an archaeologist at Boston University. Um, She studies Uh, archaeological knowledge and how that is affected by the identities of researchers. So she specifically looks at how personal bias or personal understanding of the world might affect um, archaeological knowledge. And she has done digs in the U.S., Mexico, Belize, Ecuador, and Spain. And she also works as an editorial assistant at the Journal of Field Archaeology, an academic journal published by the Boston University Department of Archaeology. So let's listen to that interview right now. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're participating. Nice. Why don't you tell the listeners your name and like what you do for a living?
2: Cool. So my name is Laura Heath-Stout. I'm an archaeologist. I'm working on my PhD in archaeology at Boston University. Um, and my job at the university that's my fellowship job is as an editorial assistant for the Journal of Field Archaeology, which is a peer reviewed archaeology journal.
0: So you're working on journals or with journals all the time.
2: Yes. Lots of copy editing, lots of fixing people's citation format, lots of thinking about how to communicate about science clearly. Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so if you were to just imagine that the, the listener that's tuning in has never read a scientific paper or has had very little contact with scientific papers, if they're clicking on a link that's taking them to an abstract from some random journal what should they do to sort of dissect what that article is talking about?
2: Yeah, so uh, you mentioned the word abstract. Um, Often journal articles will end up behind a paywall online. So if you're not affiliated with the university, you may only get to see the abstract and not the whole thing. And an abstract is basically a one paragraph, sometimes two short paragraphs, summary of the whole thing. Um, and so it's a really great place to start in order to figure out, even if you do have access to the whole article, if you want to slog through it. Um, so an abstract is going to have, um, usually the first sentence will be kind of a broader sentence about what kinds of other, what the topic is and what kinds of other research have been done on it. Then it's going to explain, um, it's going to do just a couple of sentences of what we call literature review, which is kind of summarizing what other scientists who are working on similar questions have done so far, and then it's going to introduce what this article does. So ideally, every article is doing something new, presenting some new information. Um, it might say a sentence about the methods that were used. It'll say a little bit about the results, and then the con- and then like why it's important in one sentence. So that is, it'll probably be like eight to 10 sentences or even shorter than that. And so that's a really useful place to start because it might use jargon words that you don't know, but it is pretty straight to the point. And so you're not going to get bogged down in a huge discussion of what kind of machinery they used in their lab in the abstract. Um, so then that kind of gives you a sense of what you're looking at here. Um, and then from there, if you have access to the whole article, you can decide whether you want to read more of it.
0: Okay. And if you're looking at that abstract and and you're just looking for like the basic conclusions they may have come to, um, can you find that there? And then how do you decipher that?
2: Yeah. So it will, the abstract will usually say like a sentence or two about the conclusions, but it won't necessarily explain all the logic of how they got there. That's going to be in the paper. So it's going to be so short and to the point that sometimes when you read the abstract, you're like, okay, you found out that X, Y, and Z, but I want to know more. Um, And so, um, yeah, it's going to, it's going to be a very condensed version. And that's, part of why abstracts exist. In fact, in archeology, span there are some journals that will publish um, English articles and Spanish articles if they're focused on archeology span of Latin America. And the article might be in either language, but they'll publish the abstract in both languages so that you can read it in your native language and then decide whether you want to slog through it in your second language. Um, So that's kind of the purpose of the abstract is to give you that kind of short and sweet piece. And then if you look at the article, Um, There's usually a results section kind of towards the end. So there'll be an introduction that explains what the research kind of question is that might give some background information about uh, what this field is, what we already know. Then there'll be an explanation of the methods that are used. And unless you're actually interested in how did they find this thing rather than what did they find, you can you probably won't want to slog through the methods. If the if what did the scientist actually do to get this result is what interests you, that's where you want to go. And otherwise you can usually kind of skip it if you're just trying to get to the the real heart of the matter. Then there'll be results and sometimes the results are presented, often in science journals they're presented very Without a lot of opinion or argument, it's and there's a lot of maybe numbers and just a lot of like this is what we found, this is what we found, but not a lot of what it means. So the what it means end ends up after the results and usually a discussion section or a conclusion section, um, and that's where they're really going to explain. Okay, I just gave you all these numbers, I gave you a bunch of graphs here's what they mean and here's what the implications are. Um, so I recommend in most cases, if I read something about nutrition or fitness or health online, and I want to look at the original article, the discussion and the conclude, the introduction and the discussion and the conclusions are going to be more useful to me, probably as someone who doesn't study nutrition or health or fitness than the kind of methods and results themselves.
0: And what about things like bias? Can you, I mean, if you identify, when you look at scientific journals and articles, you must go right to the section of who sponsored them. What are, mm-hmm. what, are, what is your take on that?
2: Yeah, so um, there's always an acknowledgement section. Often it's like right at the end between the conclusion and the, um, work cited or bibliography. Um, and, um, usually it's in like little fine print, maybe italics, maybe it's smaller. Um, and it'll say where, um, what funding people got. It might also say so-and-so and so-and-so edited my draft for me. It'll, or, you know, my wife supported me through this or my husband supported me through this or whatever, but it's, uh, really like ethically and legally required that you explain where you got the money to pay for the research that you're doing um and so there are some a lot there are a lot in the US there are a lot of really reputable funders that are um connected to the government so the national science foundation is really reputable the National Institutes of Health, uh, for a lot of health things, uh, for the humanities, you might have like National Endowment of the Arts or National Endowment of the Humanities. Um, of course, funding for those things is under attack right now. Uh, but if it has uh, one of those, if it has like a grant from one of those, then it's definitely going to be pretty reputable. Uh, there are also private foundations that give grants. Um or like kind of nonprofits that give grants. And you may or may not have heard of those depending on what they are. So some of them are going to be the same people that if you listen to NPR, you're going to hear like the MacArthur foundation sponsored this. And if they're sponsoring NPR, they're probably sponsoring pretty reputable science. Um, you know, it, it's, it's tricky. Um, you know, in anthropology, we have the winter grand foundation and, nobody but anthropologists have, has heard of them, but I know that it's really hard to get a winner grand grant and they have a really extensive vetting process. So what you'll start catching the same names. So um, is there
0: anyone to, uh, or any organizations that you watch out for or things that you might but that generally people should look out for as maybe indications that the science has been influenced
2: by something else? Um, I think that in some fields, um, it, a lot of it is really field specific. So there's um, for like archaeology, if I'm looking at any archaeology in Israel, I want to look to see if there's a religious organization sponsoring it because um, there's a lot of Jewish organizations that will sponsor uh, archaeologists that are trying to show that the land belongs to Jews and Muslim archaeologists and Christian archaeologists and There are people who are like trying to find evidence of particular stories in the Bible, uh, which is just kind of a different orientation towards science than I have. So there there are definitely things like that um, to watch out for. Um, Obviously, with climate change, kind of science, uh, there's a lot of things, but I wouldn't necessarily know what to look for. Um, One thing to think about is the journal that it's published in. So lots of things are going to be published in journals that you may not have heard of because there are tons of academic journals out there. Um, if it's in, um, science or nature, it, um, it might be controversial. They publish some controversial things, but it's definitely highly vetted. Those are like science and nature are the two kind of, uh, biggest deal journals. And they're, huge they publish tons of stuff across the sciences so there may be other scientists who strenuously disagree with it if it's in one of those journals but you know that it's by somebody who like is really well educated and has thought really hard about it and that they have sent this article to a whole bunch of other scientists who have said yes this is good enough to publish um the kind of more specific to the journal, the less likely you are to know it unless you're an academic. Um, and so that can be, that can be tricky, but um, yeah, you can look at also what organization publishes the journal. So the journal I work at is published by Boston university. So if it's a journal published by a university you've heard of, it's likely reputable, or if it's published by a professional organization, like the association of American whatever um that's going to be like the same organizations that have big academic conferences will often have journals and those are pretty reputable and so if you go to like you google the name of the journal it'll tell you all this information like who the editor is and stuff there's a website for every journal and who publishes it and so if it's a university press or sounds like it's coming from a like an organization of academics, that's so probably pretty reputable.
0: Okay. So once you've sort of identified that it's a reputable source and that it's maybe an unbiased article or an unbiased study, how do you then compare what the conclusions that this, this article that you came from is drawing versus what the actual science is saying in the, in the actual published journal?
2: Yeah. So those can vary wildly, especially when the original scientific article in a journal seems kind of dry to the reporter or the person writing, they will come up with all kinds of over the top things. So my favorite example as a feminist archaeologist is this article from Jezebel from spring of 2016 called the bad bitches of Stonehenge. Um, And so I was teaching an archaeology of gender class and one of my students sent me this and I was like, I don't know what this is, but it's not strictly based on the archaeology. Archaeologists don't use that language. That's just not, I mean, we might in talking to each other, but not in educating the public about our field. And so um, I read it and it said, Uh, There was this burial and there were all these women buried at Stonehenge. So Stonehenge was totally run by women. And I was like, hmm, women, there are burials of women in our society, but we've never had a woman president. Like our society is not totally run by women, regardless of what you think about feminism. We're not totally overrun by women. So. So I went and found the original article and I ended up giving it to my students to read. And what the actual article said in great detail was that there was a burial where there had been a bunch of cremated human remains, um, but they're prehistoric. So there were like chunks of bone in the ashes. And on average, female people have slightly different shaped holes in our skulls where our ear nerves connect to our brain than male skeletons and so they found these and there were slightly more female shaped earholes than male shaped earholes. So there were women and men buried there. And this is not a super patriarchal thing where only men are buried there. That's what the scientists said. And then Jezebel was like, it's a matriarchy <laughs> um, <laughs> just because Jezebel wants it to be a matriarchy. Um, that, that would be their spin. And so this happens all the time in archaeology. Um, you get a lot of stuff about the Paleo diet that also takes like really specific Paleolithic uh, health information and kind of projects it to mean something about how we should be eating that's far beyond what the archaeologist was originally trying to say so it's definitely true that with the beginning of farming people get less healthy um paleolithic people were eating a hugely varied diet and getting a ton of exercise and were on average healthier than people who are eating like literally mostly bread so sure but if you sit in your office all day and then you take a 20-minute walk and then you eat a giant factory farmed steak. Your life does not actually represent the Paleolithic. And so people will be like, the Paleolithic people ate a lot of meat, so you should too. And But you, they're taking only one piece of the Paleolithic lifestyle. Right. Which is, yes, Paleolithic people did eat meat. They also ate a lot of plants. They ate a lot of different things. They were super omnivorous. That's what they did. Um, and they got a ton of exercise. And they had to hunt that meat, and it was not factory farmed, genetically modified cows. So, (laughs) you know, so anything, usually the original scientific article will not say, therefore you should live your life X way. Anything that is drawing conclusions that's like, you should blah, blah, is usually not the original science. Um, And so this happens with nutrition. I see this all the time. Like, You should be like drinking lots of red wine. You should be eating lots of chocolate. You should be eating fat. You should not be eating fat. And usually those come from an article that said in these very particular experimental conditions, people who had this slight difference in their diet had this slight difference in some health outcome. But there are lots of health. our health is really complicated. And so anytime there's a simplistic, you should that should be a red flag to go look at the original and look at the conclusions section, the last bit of the scientific article. And you'll see that the scientific, what the scientist is writing is going to almost all scientific articles end with. So in these circumstances, this thing is true, which implies that perhaps X, Y, or Z, but more research is needed. That's how 9% of scientific articles end. And So that reminds you that this is a very, like, each little article is a small piece that all comes together into our knowledge about the world, and we shouldn't, every time we see a new article on the internet, especially one with a click title, just assume that we should throw out everything we know and totally change the way we're living.
0: Okay, so I can tell this is something you've thought about a lot.
2: (laughs) Yes, a lot.
0: So it, it have you found that there are places where on the internet where people could go to get more synthesized information that does take into account like the quality of study and the amount of studies done and all of that so you can mm-hmm. maybe find a place where you can get some detail
2: Yeah so uh, there are a whole bunch of kind of science magazines and publications that have staff Um, or or even sections of newspapers. Like the New York Times science section is really good. Um, And they're usually publications that are pretty well-known, like Scientific American, Discover, National Geographic, these kind of big um, magazines that also publish things online. And usually they have people whose whole career is to be a science journalist. So they probably have a background in science. They may have a master's in science journalism. There are specific programs that teach you both how to understand the particular science that you're interested in and how to communicate it well. Um, And I actually took a science journalism class a year or two ago because I was thinking about whether I would want to do that. And so many of the people in my class were getting master's degrees in science journalism and they each were kind of interested in a particular realm. So there was one person who was interested in like water quality stuff. And she was writing about this, um, town where the water had been poisoned by a corporation. And this was when Flint was really in the news. And so she was kind of branching off of that. And she knew so much about water quality and she was only like 24, but that's what she wants to study. And our professor had been studying um, and writing for the public about um, all kinds of like criminal justice and all the psychology research that goes into how we interrogate people and how we solve crimes. And so even though He wasn't doing the research, the academic research himself. He had been on that beat for decades. So he was super knowledgeable and he was writing for places like National Geographic, Scientific American, Discover, Smithsonian Magazine has some good stuff, things like that. And he was writing for really kind of reputable, although our president would call them fake news, news organizations like The New York Times, The New Yorker. Atlantic, Harper's, that kind of like big thinky magazine, that's what he was writing for. And so those people were hiring him because he was knowledgeable and he was really good at kind of synthesizing it. And so that kind of place, that kind of publication is going to have more reputable things than say, I mean, I enjoy reading Jezebel, but they got a press release about this study at Stonehenge. And they blew it out of proportion. And there are a lot of kind of more clickbaity websites that will get a press release about a particular study and they won't necessarily go read a whole bunch of other studies and know where this fits in. They'll just make a splashy headline about that one story. Um there's it's a good sign if the article talks about multiple different scientists and multiple different studies that is a good sign.
0: Excellent. Um so if you were to give just the listeners any bit of advice when they're navigating the world of the internet and uh, and articles based on "quote unquote science," what would you say?
2: I would say don't let any one article change your mind too much about something that you don't feel like you already have been reading about. So if it's a new topic to you and you see one article about it, maybe, and you're curious, go find some others, see what other people are saying and look for places, websites that you've heard of that are reputable. Um, rather than just whatever happens to be on your Facebook feed, um, so just approach everything with a with a grain of salt. There's a lot of good stuff out there, and there's a lot of really um, out of proportion, over dramatic coverage out there too.
0: Awesome! This has been so helpful. Thank you so much for joining me. So, what would you think, Lucia? That was pretty oh, incredible, man. right?
1: It really was. I feel like I could listen to that like 20 times over. Laura was so. I mean, you can tell this is just like her life and at least one of her jobs is looking at and rifling through so many different scholarly articles, getting to the point quickly, and then really being able to speak to it um, and help unfold how to parcel out the important parts of an article. So it was wonderful.
0: It reminded me of this class that that was offered at McAllister. I didn't take it because I was an actual geology major, but there was a class for non-geology majors uh, that was called uh, it was called Geology and Film. And essentially, what the, what my professor did was she would show a film, like for a new a new one might be San Andreas, for example, or she would show a, a film like The Day After Tomorrow, and then talk about which elements of it are based on actual geology and which are totally made up or which ones are exaggerated. And I bet that happens to archaeology all the time in film as well. Oh,
1: I'm sure. Again, I'm going to guess plenty of subjects in film are
0: going to be a little bit skewed. Yep. So I would love to look at some examples. And let's just start with that coconut oil article that we talked about earlier. I want to use I want to use her strategies that Laura recommended and kind of dissect that article.
1: So let's let's recap what that article is for anyone who hasn't already read it, and we'll link to it in the show notes. So this article um, was saying was that the American Heart Association recently released a report, really in essence saying that coconut oil is not healthy for you, and that the American Heart Association, AHA, is advising that people do not use coconut oil um, as a dietary cooking oil to be consuming. And they're saying this because um, they were looking at the data on saturated fat and coconut oil, in my opinion, to be called coconut fat because, in essence, it's primarily composed of saturated fats, um, that that saturated fat from the coconut oil increases LDL, which is our quote-unquote bad cholesterol, and it it showed that in seven out of seven controlled trials. Okay, and in place, they were advocating for the use of vegetable oils, more um, oils that they were deeming heart-healthy. So that's our little recap.
0: So there are a bunch of different studies that are linked to in this article. The AJ review is linked to in there Unfortunately, there's not a lot besides the abstract that they link to. There's also another article that they link to because they start kind of, as usual in a pop science article, they take a couple of tangents, one being um, the tangent of, why do you care anyway? Coconut oil isn't going to help you lose weight. And they link back to an article um, and they say that article cites a study in which it was shown that coconut oil does not help overweight adolescents lose weight. So I did a little digging into that article. If you read back to the original study that was done, it was only conducted on 15 kids. They were given only two meals total, not per day. And the control group had their meals cooked in corn oil, while the rest of the test group had their meals cooked with MCT oil. But the study itself said that the purpose of the study was to test satiety after meals based on intake of oils, not to study weight loss so that connection that connection that the article made was essentially to say well if they're testing satiety they must be testing weight loss but the article didn't say that and what they found was that in this really small study that there was no changes in interaction on appetite and satiety so essentially using mct oil in a meal versus corn oil for 15 kids tested two times shows that there's no direct effect on satiety eating MCT oil, which doesn't at all contribute to this conclusion that MCT oil, specifically coconut oil, doesn't help you lose weight. And at the at the end, in their conclusions, it specifically says um more research needed to be done. just like Laura said it would. <laughs> Right, which, and
1: then they're pulling, obviously, they're pulling plenty of information, or they're, like, pulling kind of at strings to get, uh, a, 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 they're pulling at strings in order to
0: get a slant. Right, and then the main point of the article draws from this idea that saturated fat is bad for you, which is an assumption that comes from separate studies that were not part of this study. What's your thought on that? Ha. <sighs> I was trying
1: to like make a metaphor and with like cookbooks and then it's like, no, 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 that that's not a a sound metaphor for this. It's like, it's like building a house, like a wooden, like a frame house, and you're using like 15 different types of wood. And you're using cedar, and you're using balsa, and you're using oak, and you're using all these types of wood that are going to have different densities and probably different weight-bearing loads. And if you build a whole house out of that and you say, this is a really sound, stable structure because wood is strong. Anyone else understand that metaphor? That's yeah, where I'm going so with it.
0: <laughs> I think what you're saying is that the body, your body functions are directly affected by what you take in And cholesterol is one piece of that puzzle, and specifically LDL and HDL are two smaller pieces of that puzzle. And some of them ways that you take those in might be good and some might be bad. That's a
1: great way to take it. (laughs) That's, yeah, that's the second way to take it. I like it. What I was trying to say is that this article, the USA Today article, is trying to piece together all this different information in order to make a really sound quality argument. But their argument, once, just like you were doing, Hannah, once you dive into the scholarly articles that they're pulling these little sound bites from, it immediately dissolves their argument. So from the outside, it can look like a really scary article you're like oh my god of course I've been duped of course I can't consume coconut oil look at what it's saying look at all this great information how is this how is the wool been you know pulled over my eyes how long did it take you to look at those actual articles to pull them up and dig deeper how long would you say Hannah
0: um well it took a while because once I pulled up that first study about the kids weight loss thing then I had to go back and look at a couple of other studies that were done and what for the AHA review? That was like pulling apart so many fibers to get to what they were talking about because they were referencing other studies that 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 they've done before.
1: Right. So it it takes a lot of time, but I would say, especially for something as important as your own health, that's probably the time that is required. But no one wants to be doing that, and it, it just I think it shows the power of an article.
0: I have another example for you. Um, there was an article written in the New York Post, and the title of it was "No One Seems to Care How Dangerous CrossFit Is." So here's a really good clickbait headline. Uh, the implication in the headline is that CrossFit is dangerous, and the other implication is that um, nobody is taking stock of how dangerous it is, and. CrossFit instructors are being reckless. That's what it implies to me when I look at it. Of course, that is a twist on what they were even trying to say in the article, which is once you start reading it, you realize what they mean by no one seems to care about how dangerous CrossFit is, is that people who are doing CrossFit seem to love doing it, even though there may be implications that there are possibilities for injury.
1: Can you debunk that, please?
0: I can. The first thing is that the actual – article headline is contradictory to what the article is about because the article is about, it's interviewing this one woman who says that she loves doing CrossFit even though she hurt her shin on a box jump. So the article headline says no one seems to care how dangerous CrossFit is, but the actual information they're providing you is basically this woman's saying how much she loves doing CrossFit even though she bonked her shin once before. So they're twisting words to make it seem like one thing so that you click on it, and then when you actually get into the meat of the article, they're actually not even saying that in the article. In fact, in the article, they they talked to a doctor who specifically says that strength training is an essential part of maintaining fitness and building health, who talks about how high-intensity interval training is an important factor in, in boosting metabolism, and they interviewed Greg Glassman or they, they quote an interview from Greg Glassman that says uh, we he's never denied and CrossFit HQ has never denied that there is um, always an opportunity for injury or danger when when you do something like high-intensity fitness. So this is my – even somehow even more baffling than misusing the science, which is not using any science, basing all of your information on interviews and actually – saying something different in the article than you do in the headline. So that people end up sharing the headline versus the actual article and getting confused about what the message is supposed to be.
1: Because think of social media these days. How many headlines will you flip through checking Facebook when you're checking it between meetings or when you're sitting on the toilet or eating lunch? You might not click through, but you're going to scroll, you might not click through to the actual article itself and even read that pop science, but you're likely, your eyes are going to glaze over that headline that's one short sentence that's there to be memorable, and you're going to remember that. That's going to trigger something in your in your psyche. That's You're going to be like, ooh, ooh maybe ooh, there's something about CrossFit being not, not what it says it is.
0: Exactly. And you really see this a lot with CrossFit. If you even just look up, is CrossFit bad? You'll find dozens and dozens of articles that all end up pulling from the same information um, and misusing that information to sort of come up with uh, these ideas based on what the author decided they want to say. Because the reality is there is not a lot. There's not very many long term studies or any long term studies that I could find regarding CrossFit athletes compared to other types of high intensity training. Because if you compare a CrossFit athlete to uh, somebody who is doing nothing, or somebody who is doing com- something completely different, like swimming, uh, or a low um, a low to moderate intensity exercise, you're comparing oranges and apples. So there isn't any studies done, there is no scientific, science really to base it on, besides the science that we've talked about before on the show, which is we know high intensity interval training affects the body greatly. We know that strength training helps with bone density and a billion other things, hormone regulation, et cetera, et cetera. But there is no specific study regarding CrossFit athletes versus other high intensity sports and which one is more likely to lead to injury. So I'm calling bullshit.
1: (laughs) I'm glad you are.
0: (laughs) And if you're listening and you have a study to show me, please send it my way. I would love to read it.
1: Another important part that I wanted to pull from from Laura's interview was, and I don't even need to speak to this in detail, but also just to remember, of these studies that are being quoted, who is funding those studies? I was glad that you were able to discuss that with Laura, because I do think that is important, is what what bodies, to whatever extent that means, were putting funds into the research because there could be some bias because of that not all the time and it's going to depend just like laura said on the institution and how well known it is or um, the, the researchers but if there's a if there's a company or an institution that is looking
0: for a specific result there could be some bias within the study i mean you not definitely don't take it seriously if you read a study about the limited effects of tobacco and it's sponsored by a cigarette company. But that, and that is pretty, that's like a pretty small percentage of the kind of bias that I think we see in pop science articles because that, the, the bias in the science is a little bit, it's harder to get away with. But it's the bias, I think, in the the author of the, of the secondary article that you really need to be aware of. Because, for example, let me just, you know, let's just talk about Something that is a big problem and is talked about a lot lately, which is anti vaccination articles written by people who are citing science that doesn't even make the claim that they're citing. And in fact, they're using the science to say, well, the science says it's somewhat inconclusive. And so we should read between the lines and say it's conclusive in the opposite way. And that's a huge problem. And you say the same thing with anti meat articles from vegan or vegetarian sites. You see a lot of problems there with people saying, this is what the science says, and if you read back to the science, the science doesn't actually make any conclusions related to that or might make an opposite conclusion that they're using and twisting to fund a certain perspective. I know that you actually came up against that recently.
1: I did. Um, and that's it, it, this, for me, came from watching a documentary that was recent, recently released on Netflix called What the Health... Um, and people are calling it, and this is a little biased, I would say, in this label, people are calling it a vegan propaganda film. Um, I'm not going to call it that, but j- just to show that it's um, creating some very specific lines in the sand about what camps of eating people are in and Um, I personally think that nutrition is pretty individual. So for some people, a vegan diet, or definitely, I would say for even a bigger uh, amount of people, a vegetarian diet might be what feels great. So I want to respect that. Um, But unfortunately, this documentary was discussing a lot of science where they were cherry picking information from different studies. um, And they were even just in how they were presenting information. That really, to me, was the most striking bit. Not only that someone might be cherry picking information and putting that out there and have a belief that, you know, if one type of meat is bad, all meat is bad. You should never eat it. Eggs are, you know, eating one egg a day is like smoking five cigarettes a day. Okay, you can have your opinion, but to create a 90-minute documentary that is so impactful it's like a it's like a headline on drugs right it's like one of those BuzzFeed articles with the sentence and that sentence is now 90 minutes long and someone's going to be engrossed and there's video and storytelling and they're making compelling arguments on the surface but same thing if you dive deep into the studies of what they're actually um, quoting it's, it quickly dissolves their argument that meat is the cause of diabetes. Animal products are what are killing the majority of people. Um, and it's it's tough to be reflecting on that while also agreeing with a lot of what the film is saying. The film is saying that vegetables are really healthy. Yeah, great. <laughs> Let's all eat a bunch of vegetables. However, there there's broad blanket statements that I think... Um, do a disservice to the public especially in in the arena of nutrition where people get so scared and so nervous because it's so directly linked to their health and there's so little empowering information out there.
0: Yes, there's so little empowering information. Most of the information is meant to scare and and also meant to mislead. Like that what you just said reminded me of one of the other articles I saw online that was titled are are eggs as bad as cigarettes or are eggs worse than cigarettes I think it was Um, and the study that they referenced was looking at uh, eggs and a couple of other elements but specifically they talked about egg yolk and cigarettes and then a few other things and they compared the um, effect on cholesterol over time and they found that uh, and having two egg yolks per day had um, a two-thirds effect of what it had to smoke five cigarettes per day uh, in terms of cholesterol. So that's already hard enough to splice out because what they're saying is it's not as bad as cigarettes in terms of raising cholesterol, but it's two thirds as bad as cigarettes in terms of raising cholesterol. But what they don't talk about in this article, the secondary article, is that the, the effect on cholesterol is not even in the top, 10 concerns for smoking cigarettes because the other top ones that stick out are things like emphysema and cancer and lots and lots of other things that come along with cigarettes so the suggestion that egg yolks having two egg yolks per day is worse than cigarettes or as bad as cigarettes is so misleading and super dangerous because you're throwing out some information that makes it seem like you'd be better off choosing cigarettes than eggs and you're throwing information that might make somebody change the way that they're eating in an unhealthy way because they're trying to do whatever it is that that author wanted them to do.
1: And on top of that, there is no discussion about the quality of the eggs themselves. They're coupling all eggs, whether it's quail eggs or duck eggs or chicken eggs or whatever. In the, in the pop science article, they're just saying eggs. And we're all going to assume chicken eggs, but in addition to the type of egg – There's a quality. How was that chicken's life? Was it a stressed out, sick animal? Are you eating eggs from an animal that was fed corn and soy and grains and foods that were never intended for that animal to eat? Chickens have to eat bugs and grass in addition to their vegetarian feed. They eat a little bit of animal meat, too. And what's the label on the carton of eggs that you're buying? Are they local? Are they pasture raised are they cage-free are they cage-free but they're in a big uh, house and so they don't actually have their own individual cages all these are the specifics of the actual eggs that one person might be consuming and when there's an article like that it's so sad because that part never gets discussed and that's kind of the beauty of food is that quality does matter and it's not just quantity
0: uh, if you're somebody who likes to get quick information, health information online, there are ways that you can get through this horrible muddle world that is the internet. The first thing you got to do is find your reputable sources that you can come back to time and time again. I love National Geographic as an option because they do a really good job of assessing all the science that's available and making a really complete picture of something. So. They recently did, well, and I don't even know how recently, it might have been a couple of years ago, but they did an, uh, a big article on sugar and they talked about the history of sugar, where, you know, where it comes from in the world. They talked about um, different ways that different cultures have used it over time and how it's changed and how it affects our bodies. So I think that was a really amazing article that they did. It was probably like five or eight pages long. And that is a great place to start. If you're looking at stuff that's like a half page or a quarter page, it just takes up a quick spot on your internet, You just don't start to draw any real conclusions there. Back up, find someone more reputable, and then spend the time really re- reading through what they're saying and not just drawing quick conclusions based on the headline. So if you're listening, listener, thank you for tuning in. But more importantly, thank you for taking the time to figure out what's real and what's not because it will drive you insane if you spend your life reading all the BS that exists online regarding health and fitness.
1: And our challenge to you this week is to go back, find a headline, find a pop science article that swayed you, that sticks out to you, one that made you nervous or one that got you really excited. Go back, find that, and now go ahead with what we've talked about and with what Laura has talked about. Go back with a fine-tooth comb and see – After spending 10 to 15 minutes even on it and researching and looking into probably some of the studies that they're quoting in whatever article you have, see if your opinion
0: changes. And please send us your favorite examples slash least favorite examples of pop science articles you've read because we would love to see them and there are so many to choose from. Yes, please. And in the meantime, everyone, have a wonderful week and we'll catch you next time on You Have a Body Podcast. The You Have a Body Podcast is produced by me, Taj Ruler. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or visit noisemic.com for full episode information. Join in on the conversation at facebook.com/slash you have a body
2: podcast. Tweet at us at You Have a Body, or find us on Instagram at You Have a Body Podcast. Let us know what's going on with you, because guess what? You have a body.